0: Good afternoon. My name is Michael, and I serve as one of the elders of the church. It's good to be with you all this afternoon. Mountains or beaches? That's a tough question. Some people are very opinionated about that question. I'm one of those people, actually. Mountains. Mountains are definitely better. I used to think that, especially before moving to Dubai. But slowly, I've learned to love the beach. But in my university years, every summer, for four years straight, I went to the mountains. You see, I grew up in Kansas City, and there are no mountains there. So my friends and I would hop in the car, and we would drive hours, eight hours, 10 hours, 18 hours, 25 hours sometimes, straight to get to the mountains. Rocky Mountain National Park. That was our first trip. You know, those are good mountains, but there's better ones. The next time we went to Wyoming, Grand Teton National Park, perhaps some of my favorite mountains in the whole world. The next summer we went to Glacier National Park. That was amazing. Then we went back to Rocky Mountain National Park. Then we went back to Grand Teton National Park. Lots of mountains. One summer, we even hiked 90 kilometers, camped beneath the mountains at aca Lake in Montana. Absolutely secluded. No other campsites for miles. And that campsite was surrounded by the mountains. It was incredible. But none of those mountain ranges compared to Mount Zion. If you have your Bible, please open to Psalm 125. If you're following along in the bulletin, it's on page 8. We're back in the Psalm of Sense. The psalms that the Israelites sang three times a year as they journeyed toward Jerusalem. When the Israelites saw the mountain city... Of Jerusalem, they were glad because it was the place where God dwelt with his people. And as the Israelites looked upon the the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem, they were comforted because they were reminded that it was the city of God's protective blessing. The mountains reminded them that though their circumstances were uncertain, their future in God was secure. Though their enemies encompass them, their God was with them. Ultimately, this psalm, Psalm 125, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's our rock. Hebrew says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is God's goodness to us. Luke said he was good news of great joy. Jesus is our peace. Paul in Colossians says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. And for us, those of us who are in Christ, through faith in Christ, through our trust in him, this psalm is our song. And God means to use this psalm to help us journey. To heaven. Listen along as I read Psalm 125. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we need your help now in this moment. Please give us understanding that we may learn to love your commandments. Your word is wonderful, O oh Lord. Unfold it before us. Give us light to see the beauty, the majesty of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. God protects, rewards, and punishes. That's the main point of this psalm. It's only five verses, but we see all three of those things in these five verses. God protects, rewards, and punishes. In verses 1 through 3, we see that God protects His people. What wonderful news to start with this afternoon. Look at verse 1. The Israelites were those who trust in the Lord. The psalmist says they are like Mount Zion, that city of God, that place where God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple. Every time I go back to my hometown of Kansas City, every summer it's changed. Some buildings that used to be there are no longer there. There's often new restaurants, new coffee shops to try. Mountains, however, don't move. Mountains don't change. The psalmist said, Israel, do you see Mount Zion? That's us. We can't be moved. We can't be shaken. As long as we trust in the Lord. So, as they sang this song, it was a word of comfort to them because they were a people in need of protection. They had a lot of enemies, if you've read the Old Testament. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I could keep going. There's more than that, even. You could say they were surrounded. But they were also surrounded by mountains. Look at verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem... So the Lord surrounds his people. They were surrounded by their enemies, but the psalmist wanted them to remember that they were also surrounded by God. In his providence, he placed his people in a city surrounded by mountains. The mountains serve like a wall, the city walls. But it's interesting that the psalmist doesn't tell them to put their trust in the mountains, but urges them to see past the mountains to remember God himself. Romans chapter one teaches us that creation itself exists to declare to the entire world, to every human being, that God is real. But the mountains surrounding Jerusalem were a special comfort to the Israelites because they declared to them that God was with them. And to support these great truths, the psalmist reminds them of of a promise in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. Now, all the way back in Genesis, Abraham was promised a land. God promised it to him. He said, out of you will come a great nation and you guys are going to live in this promised land. God actually kicked out the nations that lived in that land because of their sin against him. And God placed his people there, the Israelites, to rest in his presence, to worship him alone. And so the nations were constantly at war with the Israelites. Now, if you look in verse three, it says the scepter of wickedness. This helps us think back to all those wicked kings who were against the Israelites. Maybe you think of Pharaoh of Egypt or Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So then this is a promise for them that exile or oppression and slavery will not be there forever. The nations will not blot out the people of God. But when God promised Israel a land, he warned them too. He said, if you live just like the nations, I'll kick you out too. So the scepter of wickedness also reminds us of the countless wicked kings of Israel. Their problem wasn't just war against them. It was even the kings within them. If you look at First and Second Kings, there's a repeated phrase that describes most of the kings of Israel. Here it is. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as nations become like their rulers, so Israel became like their kings. So look back at verse three, you'll see a warning. Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. With wicked rulers, temptation to sin abounds. Now this principle actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis three, in the garden, the original place where God dwelt with his people. Adam and Eve reached out their hand, took the forbidden fruit. Sin entered the world. Wickedness began in the garden. It continued with the Israelites. It threatened their kingdom eventually dividing it, leading the people into exile, living in the land of their enemies. But verse 3 tells us this will not be forever. The faithful Israelites trusted God's promises. But those promises actually wouldn't come into fulfillment in their time. It wasn't until a scepter arose from Israel that did no evil. Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of David, the Righteous One. And Jesus then secured all of God's promises as he hung on the cross. He defeated all of God's enemies as he rose from the grave. So the Israelites who trusted in the Lord and sang this song, they may have departed from this world, but they live forevermore because God always keeps all of his promises. Verses 1 through 3 provided comfort for the Israelites, but it's even better news for us in Jesus Christ. Think about what we gain through trusting Christ. Through our trust in Christ, we as Christians are unshakable in God. Like Mount Zion, we cannot be moved. We cannot be shaken. Now, this does not mean, of course, that nothing bad will happen to us. Though some prosperity preachers declare this very truth. They say, nothing bad will happen to you if you are faithful And trusting in God. But here's Jesus' own words. He gives another promise. He says, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now how can we be promised trouble by Jesus? And yet in Psalm 125 we're promised that we'll be unshakable if we trust God. Unshakable. It's not talking about our bank accounts. We could lose all our money and still not be moved. It's not referring to our bodies. You could get sick and die today. But if you're in Christ, you won't be destroyed. By faith in Christ, you will live forever. This is the firm foundation that Christians have in Jesus Christ. You could lose your job. You could get COVID. You may even lose a loved one, your very own life. But friend, if you are in Christ, though you die, you shall live. We're unshakable in God. Through our trust in Christ, we're also surrounded by God. Think about that for a moment. When my daughter is fearful, the first thing she does, she runs to me or my wife. She hides between our legs. She finds comfort and security there. How much greater, as Christians, is our comfort that God surrounds us? Jesus said to his disciples right before he went back to the Father, right after the resurrection, he said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But then he left. He left. He told them, I'm going to be with you always. But then he left them. But just days later, the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers at Pentecost. The church was birthed. The Bible teaches that God is everywhere present at all times. Yet, as we all know, he's hidden from our eyes. But he's there. He's here. Even in this room, right now, God is with us. But there's a special truth here for the believer because through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. God not only surrounds us, but he is within us. What a comfort is this for the lonely believer. Your friends and your family may forsake you. God will never abandon you. You are truly never alone if you're a Christian. What an assurance is this truth for the scared believer. You could take anything in your life, any situation, any person you fear, and you just compare them to the Lord Almighty. What do you have to fear? What a relief for the persecuted believer. You are actually sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. We just sang earlier, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Through our trust in Christ, we also have a promise from God in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. It's a promise for us that the wicked will not reign forever. Some of you may have horrible bosses. They oppress you and mistreat you. Maybe they use their authority to take advantage of you. Here's a truth that their rule over you will not remain forever. Even in the church, maybe some of you have had ungodly pastors who use their power to abuse you and use you. Friend, every pastor will one day give an account to Jesus Christ himself, the chief shepherd. This truth means even spiritual powers that are at work in this world will one day come to an end. That's what Colossians teaches. Jesus disarmed all wicked scepters, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He disarmed them all, put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Friends, isn't this a promise that we need, especially on those days when we think we're tempted to think that evil will actually win. In the last book of Lord of the Rings, after the great battles are all over, after the ring is thrown into the fire and done with, one of the characters, a hobbit, Sam, he asks the old wizard Gandalf, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? For Christians... For those in Christ, the answer to that question is yes. Evil will not win in the end. Verse 3 then is a promise to us. It may be night right now, but day will break. It may be death now, but resurrection is coming. For the believer, the best is yet to come. We're unshakable in him. We're surrounded by him. We have a promise from him. So, friends, we must trust him. We must trust him. These wonderful truths are for those who trust in the Lord. What do you trust in? Where is your trust? Where do you find refuge? Where do you go to find safety? Some of us trust in the comfort of earthly things like food the taste, the relief. Others trust in work, a steady paycheck, or the recognition you get. Still others may trust in leisure, getting away and escaping life's problems. Church, lest we be those who stretch out our hands and do evil, let's name every single way that we fail to trust in God and instead give our trust to idols. Let's repent of these and let's rejoice together that in Jesus we have a mighty fortress. Let's remind one another of God's complete and comprehensive care over every category of our lives. Let's trust his protection together. In this short psalm, Verses 1-3 through offer us a strong image, comparing us to Mount Zion, reminding us of God's protecting presence. Friends, this is good news. In the last two verses, the psalmist shifts his song to prayer. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here we see that God rewards his people, but he punishes his enemies. Notice that stark contrast in these verses. There are those who are good in verse 4. There are those who turn aside in verse 5. There are the upright in heart in verse 4. And then there's the evildoers in verse 5. In verse 4, God's people pray for God's goodness. That's what they want. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. They prayed this prayer with faith in God's promises, not trusting in their own goodness. They were called to obey God, but their obedience didn't save them. Paul tells of this in Romans 3. He says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So Abraham and all true Israelites believed God It was counted to them as righteousness. Their faith was then revealed in their obedience. So they prayed. They prayed trusting that God would give his goodness as they themselves reflected his goodness to the nations. Do you see how the Israelites prayer for goodness was answered in Jesus Christ? He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He was the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The greatest act of God's goodness was and is Jesus Christ. And through his death and resurrection, God actually entered into a new covenant with his people. Now believers can obey God from the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. At the cross, remember what happened. A great exchange took place. God's people. Their wickedness on Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness given to them. Not only can you trust that God surrounds you, that he protects you, you can also trust that he has compassion and love towards you because of Jesus. In Christ's God's disposition towards his people is only and always goodness. He loves his people. He cares for you. James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. If you're a Christian, he only gives good gifts to you. He will do good to you from this time forth and forevermore. What would it look like, friends, if we believed that God was good and only always good to us? We would obey Him. We would do good ourselves. We would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We'd be honest about our own sin and shortcomings because we would know that we're not good. Only God is good. So self-righteousness, would slowly die in our hearts as we owned our failures and our mistakes. We'd quit grumbling about our circumstances. We'd know that complaining only reveals our distrust of His goodness. So we would be content in whatever situation God placed us in, whether in singleness or in marriage, whether in plenty or hunger, whether in abundance or need. God Himself would be enough for us. We'd be satisfied in Him. Not looking for greener grass elsewhere. We'd actually be able to enjoy the good things of this world without idolizing them and worshiping them, knowing that God is actually the source of all goodness. And we'd continually pray, petitioning God for more goodness, asking Him and receiving it, because we trust Him, and we trust His disposition towards us is never hatred, he's never annoyed with us it's always loving kindness always faithfulness christian the lord has been good to you thank him for it pray for more of it live in light of it god's people receive rewards from god his own goodness in verse 5 though god's enemies receive his judgment Verse 5 is a promise, a promise of God's judgment, and a warning for the people of Israel. Many, many Israelites did not believe in God's promises. They turned from God and God's goodness. They turned to idols. They did evil. Even the priests were susceptible of this. Think of Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire to the Lord, they were consumed. Even the kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, built altars to idols on every high hill and under every green tree. That's just about everywhere. It was true even of ordinary Israelites. In Numbers 15, there was a man who chose the work of gathering sticks instead of resting in God's goodness on the Sabbath. He was killed. All of these turned aside to crooked ways. They hoard after other gods, They were eventually cut off from God's people. And just like in Israel, there are those today who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord, yet they don't walk in the way of Christ. Verse 5 then is a warning to all professing Christians. Do not turn aside. Don't stretch out your hand to do evil. God shows no partiality. If you're living in sin now, On a crooked path, friend, how do you think that path will turn out for you? Jesus said, the gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is one of the reasons that churches throughout history, in obedience to Jesus Christ, have practiced church discipline. In the Old Covenant, people who disobeyed God were placed outside of the camp. Some of them were even killed, executed for their disobedience to God. But with the New Covenant came new power to obey God. Jesus commanded us not to execute those who are in unrepentant sin, but to exclude them from membership in the church. Excommunication is when we tell a professing Christian in unrepentant sin after pleading with them, after warning them, after admonishing them, after confronting them privately and then with two or three, and then the whole church. After all that, it's telling them that we as a church can no longer affirm their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that they're no longer welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. Now the goal here is not gossip and embarrassment It's restoration and repentance. Church discipline and excommunication are a warning to all professing Christians that there is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. It's a call for the church to go after that one sheep, just one who's gone astray and to do everything in our power to bring them home. It's finally a warning. In hope that they will be saved on the last day and not be led away with evildoers. One author recently wrote a book titled, Is It Loving to Practice Church Discipline? Friends, just look at verse 5. Is it loving to warn someone that they are on a crooked path headed for destruction? Oh, friends, it's the most loving thing we could do. If you're not a Christian. Please listen. The Bible says that all have gone astray. Every one of us. I'm not better than you. None of us are better than the other person in this room. Every one of us turned to our own way. We often compare each other. We think, okay, I'm worse than that person, but I'm better than this person. But we need to compare ourselves to a holy God, he's hidden. You can't see him, but he's here. He's eternal. He's made you for eternity. This world can feel so real, but it's quickly fading away. And soon we will all stand before the judge. He sees all. Every crooked path you've taken. And you may think, well, then I just will get judgment and that's it. But friend, the Bible says that the Lord laid on Jesus Christ sin of people just like you. You do not have to be led away with evildoers. That does not have to be your ending. Jesus took God's judgment. He was led away with evildoers, though he did no evil, so that you could be counted righteous. Turn to him, friend. Leave your sin. Trust. In Jesus. And for Christians, we're reminded by this song our greatest problems are not the enemies outside of us, but the enemy within us. The temptations that we face daily to sin. The desire that still wages war in our own souls to turn aside, to leave the Lord, to follow crooked paths. Should we turn to anxiety and worry? If you, maybe you've felt this before. you felt, oh Lord, how will I ever make it to the end? If that's you, look back at verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. One word that Eugene Peterson used to describe this psalm is relax. Relax. Take a deep breath, Christian. You are in Christ. You are secure in Christ. You're safe in Christ. You're protected in Christ. Think of the Christian life. It's sitting in a mighty fortress. That's our God. He's running the show. We can have a quiet confidence in Him. Knowing that He's got this. Every trial every trouble that comes our way even the ones that are promised they only actually tighten our embrace of trusting in god so we say in our hearts with jesus your will be done that's what it looks like to trust god and in doing so if you look at the last verse we find peace that's the psalmist's last prayer peace be upon god's people peace which is only found at the blood of the cross. Peace to do what God wants and to stop wanting God to do what we want, as Augustine said. Peace which transcends all understanding. Christian, because of Jesus, God protects and rewards you. You can trust him. Let's go to him in prayer now.